Proverbs 19.2 that he admonishes us that it is dangerous to have zeal without knowledge. Uh, the net translates it and puts that nuance on it that way, that it's dangerous uh, to have zeal without knowledge. And, and, and this, is, this is very well illustrated. It's very well illustrated in the heresies of the modern-day charismatic movement. Uh, there's a lot of zeal, but it is not zeal according to the knowledge. Uh, when the Spirit of God is supposed to be evidenced by you rolling around on the floor and barking like a dog, uh, that is, that's zeal without knowledge. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of heresies there. And, and, and However, it just doesn't exist in that movement. In any believer's life or in any Orthodox church, there can be zeal without knowledge. Sadly, it's also true that, that doctrinal knowledge can be spot on. You can be spot on on your doctrine. And yet, that individual or that church can be devoid of zeal or devotion. Now, God's desire is not an either-or thing. God's desire is a, is, it's, it's, it's a both-and. Sound doctrine, when rightly appropriated, always, always produces ardent devotion. If I really am understanding the truths of Scripture the way God presents it, and to understand, when I understand correctly and I apply those truths appropriately, it's going to have a, an effect upon my, uh, upon my, my, my uh, uh, affections. It, it, I'm going to have an ardent devotion towards God. And in fact, our lives must be characterized by both sound doctrine that produces ardent devotion. Now, let me explain what I mean by devotion. By devotion, I'm not talking about the warm and fuzzies. I'm not talking about that it moves us to tears or moves us to, to, to great joy, though there's certainly nothing wrong with either one of those emotions when it comes to our, our love and our, 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 our commitment to, to Christ. But what I mean by devotion is the fact of my willingness to serve, to serve God, that I'm going to serve Him. I, I, I'm devoted to Him. Uh, there's certainly an, an, an emotional uh, aspect to that. Uh, I mean, as we were singing that last... I mean, I got chills as we were singing that last song. Uh, as I was thinking about some of those words uh, and, and, and doing uh, some of the words that we sang and, and, and thinking about the doctrinal truths behind those words. And, and it, affected me, it affected me physically. And those, but, 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 but devotion, that, if all it is is emotion, it, it's not really devotion. And devotion has to go beyond that. Devotion is expressed in how I live my life day in and day out. How I, how I interact with, with those who, whom I love day in and day out. How I interact with those who are my enemies day in and day out. And, and, and this idea of doctrine that leads to ardent devotion, it is the template of, of the New Testament, all of Scripture, but, but especially in Paul's epistles. It's clearly seen in Paul's epistles where Paul will lay down a, a set of doctrinal truths that he wants us to think about, that he wants us to meditate upon, that he wants us to understand, and then how those doctrinal truths carry over into how we live our lives. Oftentimes it's talked about, it deals with the doctrine being laid out and, the, and then the application of that doctrine. And, and, and it talks about uh, the exposition, that's where I was looking for, the exposition followed by the exhortation. And, and, and in, in Ephesians 4.1, as we think about this, Ephesians 4.1 begins with the exact same three words as Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. 
Remember, again, I memorized it from the King James. I therefore beseech you, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your, and here's, I've changed it, which is your reasonable act of service or your reasonable act of worship. And, and, and th- those three words, I therefore exhort you, or I therefore entreat you, or I therefore beseech you. Uh, that first word there is the, is the word parakalo, which, which means to exhort. And, and then the next word is the word therefore. And then, then uh, haimas is the word you. And so basically the idea, it's the same exact three words that Paul uses in the same exact order in Romans 12 and verse 1. And in both cases... Because Romans, Romans 12, verse 1 begins the section of application from the doctrine of the first 11 chapters. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 begins the application of the doctrine from chapters 1 through 3. And, and in both cases, what Paul says after those three words in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, in both cases, what Paul says after those three words are not suggestions. They're not suggestions, but rather they are commands based upon the expounded doctrine of the previous chapters. Because this doctrinal truth, because of this doctrinal truth, because of this doctrinal truth, because of this doctrinal truth, I command you this, I command you this, I command you this, I command you this. And this division of doctrine and devotion can even be proven statistically by the use of the imperative. As you know, an imperative is a command. And in the Greek text, there, there are words that you can look at, and, and, and they are imperative. And, and, and the next slide shows you this, 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 uh, this, this, these statistics. In Romans, 62 times, in, in the book of Romans, 62 times Paul uses an imperative. In chapters 1 through 11, which is the doctrinal section, he, has, he uses an imperative 13 times. However, when he gets to the devotion section, how we should apply those doctrines in 12 through 16, 49 times. 49 times. In the book of Ephesians, he uses an imperative 41 times. In chapters 1 through 3, which is the doctrine section, one time. One time he uses an imperative. One time he uses a command. In chapters 4 through 6, 40 times. 40 times he uses a command. And so we see this template that that what we know about who we are in Christ what we understand about what it means to be a follower of Christ, what we understand about who God is, should reflect in how we live our lives. And there's certain things that God expects in our lives based upon the fact of what is true about who we are in Christ. Because of of who I am in Christ, I'm to live out that identity in Christ as Paul talks about these different commands. Now, what is the doctrinal, of these 40 commands that Paul has in chapters 4 through 6, what is the doctrinal underpinning of those 40 exhortations? What is, what, what, what's, what is kind of the main theme or, or one of the main themes of, of chapters 1 through 3 that is the underpinning of those 40 commands? And here it is. The, the doctrinal underpinning is our calling to individual salvation and our calling to a corporate body of believers. Now, I know this isn't popular today, but Ephesians 1-3 through 3 teaches me this, is that the call, to indi- the call to individual salvation is also a call to a corporate body. Why do I need the church? Well, you need the church because God not, when, God called you, when God called you to salvation... 
God called you also to a corporate body. In other words, I cannot become what God wants me to become outside of the local church. Can't do it. I can't do it. Because I'm, I mean, I could, I, could, I could start giving you a laundry list of why I can't do it. I'll just give you a couple. First of all, I'm blind to my own sin. And I need somebody to show me things. I also need to be irritated by people so I can see what, you know, where I need to grow. And I also need to irritate other people so they can see where they need to grow. Now, that may be a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But the truth is, is in the church you've got sinners bumping up against sinners. And we learn how to grow. And we'll talk about that in the text, what the text teaches us. But, but, but for a believer to, do, to, to separate themselves, to devoid themselves from the church, is, is, is completely, completely antithetical to what it means to be called to salvation. A call to salvation is also a call to a corporate body. When God saves me, God expects me and God calls me to serve in a corporate body. Uh, he, that, that's, part of, that's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and it would be, if, if you lived back in the first century and, you, and someone said, Hey, are you a follower of Jesus? And you said, Yes, I am. And they said, Oh, well, what church, what body of believers do you fellowship with? Well, you know, I just kind of get out in the woods and, you know, it's just, it's just me and God. They say, Are you crazy or something? You know, are you nuts? Don't you understand what the truth of, of the scriptures teach? That the call to salvation is a call to a corporate body. And that's the underpinning of these 40 exhortations in the book of Ephesians. What it means to live this balanced life. It's not just about me individually, it's about me living in community. Not just individually, but in community. Our text this morning conveys the goal of our calling and how that goal is accomplished. Verse 1 gives us the goal. And that goal, we talked about it last week, and we'll talk about it again, but we won't spend a lot of time there. The goal is conduct that conforms to our calling. That's the goal. This is who I am in Christ. And so this is how I should live. My, my, my conduct and my, 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 my calling should be balanced. Then... How? How do you reach the goal? If there's a goal, how do you reach it? And and we see that in the latter part of verse 2 where it talks about mutual forbearance through love. How I obtain that goal is, again, it's a corporate thing. It involves a corporate thing. Mutual forbearance through love. And the details, what what does it mean to to, to forbear one another? Or bear, as the ESV translates it, to bear with one another in love. Well, he gives us the details. And it's a spirit-empowered character. So let's look at the goal. Conduct that conforms to our calling. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now we don't, we don't have time to go. We looked at this verse last week, and so we're going to just spend a, a little bit of time here just to kind of stir our pure minds, as Paul would say, by way of remembrance. Verse 1 states how the body of Christ is expected to live in light of the truths of chapter 3. Because of all these truths, all these doctrinal truths of what it means to be a called follower of Jesus Christ who's been called to a corporate body, Paul says, I therefore, because of these things, because of these truths in chapters 1 through 3, he says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
We, we told you last week that, that that word there, to walk or to live worthily or live in a worthy manner, the word that's translated worthy is the word axios. And, and, and we told you the fact that it literally means bringing up the other end of the scales. Bringing up the other end of the scales. And so the emphasis here is on conduct that is in balance with or equal to one's calling. I mean, when it comes to the calling of, of who we are in Christ, man, it's heavy. And I've been seated with Him in the heavenly places. I, I, I have the armor of God. I, I have an inheritance from the Father, an inheritance in Christ. I have access to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, all these things of what it means to be in Christ. I'm in His body. I've been gifted. Uh, I'm expected to serve the, the body. And so, man, I, oh, man, boom, the scale, I mean, the scale's right here. And what I'm called to do, he says, we need to make sure that our con- we load those, the, the, the conduct through the power of the Holy Spirit and we start growing and growing. And who we are in Christ begins to look a lot like how we live our lives. But all of us struggle with this, where who we are in Christ doesn't really match up real well with how we're living our lives. And so the goal of our life, individually and corporately, the goal of our life is to get that scale balanced. It's not going to ever be completely balanced, and it's certainly never going to look like this. But it's never going to be completely balanced because as believers and as people who are still living in sin-cursed bodies, it's going to look, you know, there's going to be times when who we are in Christ and, and how we live really don't match too well. And then there's going to be times when it, it's starting to match better than what it used to. But that's our goal. That's our goal. Constantly striving that our conduct matches who we are, who our identity is. And Paul, as we told you last week, emphasizes five areas where our, our, where our conduct is to conform to the reality of our calling. And again, I, he talks about, you know... Uh, you see it there in verse 17. Now this I say, or therefore I say, uh, you must no longer walk. Therefore walk. Therefore walk. You see that? We saw that in verse, chapter 4 and verse 17. Uh, we, we saw that also in chapter 5. Uh, and, and we looked at all the different places where that's at. But those five areas are, deals with our unity, our holiness, our love, our light, and our wisdom. We're to walk in unity. We're to walk in holiness. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in light. We're to walk in wisdom. Individually and corporately. So the goal of our conduct is conformity to our calling to salvation and our calling to the corporate body of Christ. I am to live not only in unity with Christ, I'm to live in unity with you. I'm not only to live in holiness before God, I'm to live in holiness before you and to help you grow in your holiness as you help me to grow in my holiness and help you grow in your unity as you help me to grow in my unity. And I'm to live in love, not only towards God, but in my love towards you. Because not only have I been called to salvation, I've been called to a corporate body. And I'm also supposed to, to live in light. I'm to live in light, not only before God, but I'm to live in light before you. I'm to live in wisdom before God, and I'm to live in wisdom before you. That's the goal. It's a lofty goal. It's a difficult goal. It's a goal we will never, ever completely achieve. But it's the goal we're to strive for every day, every week. And there's blessings as we make progress. 
as we make progress. But the question is, like any question when somebody puts a goal before us, okay, that's the goal. Tell me how I get there. How is that goal attained? And Paul gives, he tells us how. And he tells us the how in the latter part of verse 2, where he says, bearing with one another in love, or forbearing with one another in love. How this goal is attained is by mutual forbearance through love. To fulfill our calling, to fulfill your calling, to bring up the scale, to bring, make the scale balance individually and corporately, will require all of us to bear with or forbear one another. It requires all of us to do that. Again, it's not just about my life. It's not just about me and and getting off in my corner, in my prayer closet, in my alone time with God, and you know, getting there and oh yeah, oh yeah, and and I man, and I'm starting to grow. I'm starting to grow. It's more more than that. It's about interacting and getting my hands dirty and learning how to forgive and learning how to ask for forgiveness and learning about what it means to, to grow and to serve and to be served. It's learning how to forbear with one another. The idea of the word means simply this, to hold oneself back from another. To hold oneself back from another. In other words... And, and, and this, when you hear this word, you're, you're going to kind of have hope. You, probably, you might have the same thought that I have. We are to endure one another, and you're probably saying, "Boy, yeah, do I endure some people? Huh? Yeah, I endure them." In other words, our differences are to be tolerated. I read a great article this week in the Journal of Biblical Counseling on differences, on differences. And on variety. For some reason, God decided not to create everybody that look like, to look like me. I don't know why. I think I'm a pretty good specimen every now and then. Okay, But for some unknown reason, He didn't choose it that way. But look around. I mean, we've all got the same parts. But look how different we are. Look how different we are. Some of you... Like the cowboys. I have no idea why. You know? Some of you like coconut. Why in the world do you like coconut? Is beyond me. And I don't know why you don't love liver and onions. And I don't why why you don't... Uh, does anybody know what liver pudding is? Or Braunschweigert? Oh, my goodness. Put that on a cracker and you are in hog heaven. I mean, it is delicious. It is delicious. And some of you are going... I mean, you think... But God created... I hope, there, I hope we have a Braunschweigert smorgasbord in heaven. You know? I'll be the first one in line. Cut me off some more of that stuff, you know. Put some mayonnaise on it. Put some Miracle Whip on a cracker. Man, you, 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 have, you have died. Yeah, there you go. Good, good. I got, there'll be two, two of us in line, Nancy. There we go, yeah. So, but, but God created us different. And in that variety, and in, that, and in those differences, God is glorified. God is glorified. And, and, and we, 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 we were created to be different. But sometimes differences drive you up a wall. Isn't it funny how you fell in love with the person you fell in love with because they were so different than you, and then you end up sometimes hating the very differences that you fell in love with? 
when are they ever going to be on time? You know, they're going to be late for the rapture. You know, when's that going to happen? Huh? And, you know, she, she can tell a lot of stuff on me too, you know. I, I drive her crazy. I, I don't want to go time, but I decided to keep my truck now. She, she, I, 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 drive her, I drive my wife nuts because one day I'm here and the next day I may be over here. But for me, there's a logical reason why you go from here to here. For her, she uses the word ridiculous, which kind of irritates me when she says that. That's ridiculous. You know? But there's differences. God created these differences. And we learn to tolerate that. Now, this is not a grit your teeth kind of toleration. The Bible says I've got to tolerate her. I've got to tolerate that difference. So I'm... I'm tolerating as your teeth break off, you know. It's not a grit your teeth kind of toleration as indicated by the next phrase. Look at it. Bearing with one another. Say it to me. Come on. I know you don't want to. Bearing with one another in love. In love. We forbear with or by love. Love is the instrument or means of our forbearance. And using a word that's been popular the last couple months, it's not a quid pro quo kind of love. Okay? You love me, I love you. You do good to me, I'll do good to you. This kind of love seeks the will of God in the one loved. It is a giving love that seeks what is best for the other person. That doesn't mean you just you got to give in to them all the time. It, it's the kind of love that seeks what is best for the other person or for the church body as a whole. Let me get in real hot water here, okay? Let me give you a, something that could be a potential bomb in this church. The playground. We've all got ideas. And some of us, like me, I don't care, you know. I'm not going to be out there swinging on the monkey bars or, you know, doing stuff like that. I, don't, I mean, it, don't, it doesn't matter to me. But I would guess, as many people as are interested in it, that's how many opinions there are. And if we don't recognize that part of what God wants to do, God is, not, God is more interested in, in how, the process that we go through in getting that up than what ends up being there. God is much more interested in the process that we go through in getting that playground put up than whether or not it has this or that or it doesn't have this or that. And at part, as, as, as part of, of the eldership of this church, who is concerned for the church, not just physically, but it, the spiritual things of what's taking place, that concerns me more than anything else about that playground. And what we need to do is we need to make sure that as we're going through this, that we're willing, you know what? It may not go the way that I want it to go. But if that's what the church decides, that's okay. I promise you, there have been elders meetings. Dale can tell you this. There have been elder meetings when what I've wanted didn't happen. And you know what? You didn't know about it. And I voted for it. Even though that's not what I wanted in the elder meeting. And vice versa. Why? Because I'm more interested in the body than myself. Than myself. 
part of what we do in, in the kind of love that seeks best for the other person or for the church body as a whole is that we're willing to listen to differences, we're willing to consider differences, but we're willing to show respect to one another in those differences. And it kind of leads to the next thing, because the text also unpacks what forbearing one another looks like. How can I know if my conduct is balancing up to my calling? And so Paul, he gives the details first. He tells us how we are to forbear. Uh, and, and the way it's structured uh, indicates that. And we'll look at the, the Spirit-empowered character in the first part of verse 2. With all humility, with all gentleness, and with all patience. That's what forbearing looks like. Now, I don't know about you, but humility, gentleness, and patience do not come to me naturally. You know, we, I wrote the book, Humbleness and How I Attained It. You know, I mean, it doesn't come naturally to us, okay? It doesn't come naturally to us. So it demands, these characteristics demand a conscious choice and effort on the part of the believer. And the only way it happens is by living in dependence upon God. Upon God. Paul shares three characteristics that are associated with forbearing one another. First of all, we forbear with humility. And that's a look. What is humility? I mean, really, what is it? I mean, just, boy, that person is a really humble person. And a lot of times it's by what we see outwardly and how they act outwardly. And the noun that is translated humility in the New Testament only appears seven times. So, so we don't get a lot by looking at... It's not a word in the noun form. It's, it's not used a lot. Just seven times in all the New Testament. So, so how can we get an understanding? Uh, keep your place there in Ephesians and go to Philippians because I think in, in Philippians you find one of the places where it's used. It, 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 helps, it helps show us in pictures. It gives us an illustration of what humility looks like. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which, was in, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, here's the noun verb, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's what humility is. Humility means that I consider you more important than me and that I consider our interest of equal value. Notice, notice what he, again, look at the text again, because he, he talks about, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. I'm to look to my own interests. But that's not the only place I'm to look. I'm to look to the other person's interest as well. We are to look, we're to consider others more important than ourselves, and we are to give their interest equal weight and value with our interest. 
there's times when their interest will prevail. There's time when our interest will prevail. But either way, I'm to give equal value to it, and I'm, not to, I'm to have that same kind of attitude, even though Christ was in a superior position. He didn't see that as something to be held on to, but He humbled Himself by becoming a human being. He humbled Himself by dying. He humbled Himself by dying the kind of death that He died. That's what humility is. Living in humility, it, it, it means that, that we live our lives in such a way towards one another that we consider the other persons, as he says here, he says, let each of you look not only on his own interest, but uh, he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You have, I, I, cannot, I count you more significant than myself, but I also weigh your interests with my interests. I'm concerned about my interests, but I'm also concerned about your interests. And it's not something that I have to have. I'm willing to lay it down if that is what is best for the body or for the relationship. I'm willing to lay it down if that is what is best for relation. And that's, that's a tightrope. And sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. I was talking to Dale this morning. He said, I decided to keep my truck. So we got four cars. Need a truck? Let me know. You know? And so now, Dale said, how big is your garage? I said, well, we got two, it's a two-car garage. So which two are going to go in the garage? Well, Lisa decided which two. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, don't work that way. It's a two-car garage, so you get to pick one, and I get to pick one. You know, I'm, I, and again, I'm not sure if I'm, I've really done this well or not, but I'm, 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 I've put, at least in my mind, I'm putting into practice thinking about my interests as well as her and keeping them equal, okay? Gosh, I'm even feeling bad as I'm saying this. But anyhow, <laughs> but anyhow, she decided on the pilot, and I just, she wanted to put the pilot in the CRV because they're the newest vehicles. But the reason why we got a clean garage is because I wanted to put the BMW in the garage because its whole life it's been a garage. And I do not want to, I mean, Mr. Bean needs to be in the garage, okay? He needs to be in the garage. Now, I'm not sure if it's quite worked out that way and according to Scripture, but let's just say that it is and God will deal with me after the services. But, but that's part of how we, again, it's, it's a tightrope. It can be difficult in doing that. It's hard doing that but we should strive towards that goal. The next word that he uses is the word with gentleness back in our text. With gentleness. This word is also translated meekness. It's also listed as part of the fruit of the Spirit. And and, and when I was studying this, this is the first time I ever ran across a statement like this and an idea like this. And man, it just just tipped me between them. Because when we usually think of gentleness and meekness, and we've heard it like strength under control, it's like a horse, you know, we've heard illustrations of a horse that's got all this power, but it's also got a bridle. But man, I love this description. Listen, it describes a person who gets angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Wow. I think that's spot on. Gentleness is not some kind of milk toast, you know, just... Gentleness or meekness. Because Jesus, Moses was meek, but Moses got angry. Jesus was meek, but Jesus got angry. And meekness or gentleness describes someone 
There are times when we need to get angry. But sadly, I usually get angry at the wrong time and don't get angry when it's the right time for me to get angry. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. Within this context, it looks like this. In the corporate context, it looks like this. When I'm sinned against, I will not seek revenge. Rather, I will, if possible, seek reconciliation. And and we have the example of God doing that in the book of Romans. When I'm sinned against, I will not seek revenge. Rather, I will, if possible, seek reconciliation. But when a wrong has been committed towards a brother or sister or against the church body, my anger then becomes folk. I get angry, and that anger gets focused upon addressing the situation, seeking justice for the oppressed. That's what it looks like in a corporate context. When I'm sinned against, I'm not going to get angry. Rather, I'm going to try to find out a way to get reconciled. If I need to ask forgiveness, if I need to talk to them about them seeking forgiveness, hey, you've offended me, we need to talk about this. But I'm going to seek reconciliation. I'm not going to get angry. I'm going to seek reconciliation if possible. If possible. But when I see a brother or sister in Christ get sinned against, or when I see a church that is being, uh, uh, being sinned against, then I'll get angry. But that anger forces me to address the situation so that justice can occur. God's justice can happen. So I forbear when I, when I exhibit humility. I forbear when I exhibit gentleness. I also forbear when I exhibit patience. This is also part of the fruit of the Spirit. And while it's connected to the previous idea, it has other applications. And the application deals with withholding and waiting. That's a good way to remember it. Patience in this, in this context with this word talks about withholding and waiting. It, it, the word describes God's withholding of His wrath when He was wronged by human beings. And you read that in Romans chapter 2. We won't take the time to read it, but it's in Romans chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, where the goodness and kindness of God leads us to repentance. In other words, God's patient with us. He with the wrath. I mean, how many of us would admit? Now, I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but how many of us would admit God should have killed us a long time ago? You know, He should have killed us a long time ago. But He withholds. He withholds. He withholds. He withholds. He withholds the wrath that is due us. He withholds. It also speaks to waiting patiently when, when immediate results are not seen, like a farmer who waits for his harvest. So how does that relate to us as a church? How does it relate to dealing with other people? It means that, that there's times that when I've dealt even with, with, with when, I, when I've dealt with people that, man, I, I mean, I want to unload. Man, I just want to unload. I'm sure you've never felt that way. But I wanted just to unload. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, just, just, I'm, not, I'm not talking about get the hammer out. I'm talking about get, I mean, the hammer. You know, they got all of you. I'm the hammer. You know, kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. That isn't, that's not being patient towards somebody. Or I get frustrated because things aren't moving as fast. Listen, you haven't, can't, can't you get it yet? 
Don't you see yet? I mean, come on. How long is it going to take you to learn this? But God has called me to wait. And if I would quit looking at other people and start looking at moi, man, how many times should Lisa have just unloaded on me? Or my kids unload on me? Or the people I pastor unload on me? But they're patient. And how many times do I still do the same thing, still struggle with the same thing? And my wife or my family or my brothers and sisters in Christ could say, Greg, when in the world are you going to get it? When are you going to get it? But they wait because they believe that God is still working and that God's work of grace is still there and it will result eventually into a harvest. These spirit-empowered characteristics with humility, with gentleness, with patience describes how we are to forbear one another in love, not only corporately but individually and in all our relationships. And quite frankly, it can't happen without the power of the Spirit of God. It won't happen without the Spirit's empowerment. In fact, these Spirit empowerment characteristics are essential. And why it's important for us to to fall on our knees before God and and ask the Spirit of God to work in our lives and, and and be be broken and get angry when we, when we blow it, but, but rejoice in, 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 in the progress that God is making in our lives and when we move forward, even when it's just an inch or two, yet we see God at work and we, we move forward and, and we're learning little by little. And why is these things so important? Because these spirit-empowered characteristics are essential. If you and I have any hope, any hope, individually and collectively, of experiencing our conduct Balancing out to the level of our calling. If I have any hope, these spirit-empowered characteristics have got to operate in my life in order that I might forbear with one another, that others might forbear with me, so that my calling individually as a believer and my calling to a body of believers, conduct and calling, start to balance out one another. Living a balanced life. A life where our conduct rises to the level of our individual call to salvation and our corporate call to the body of Christ. It requires understanding who we are and what we have in Christ and living our identity through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Before Paul closes, or how Paul, let me rephrase that, how Paul closes out the doctrinal section of Ephesians is with a doxology, with a prayer. And he gives this doxology of praise and this prayer that leads into all the imperatives that he talks about all the things that we'll be talking about over the weeks to come, all the things that we've talked about today. This. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 and look at verse 14. For this reason, 
Paul talks about the things that he's talked about earlier. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I get on my knees. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And he's praying for them now. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that, listen, listen to the Trinitarian nature of this. The Father, the Spirit, and Christ. The Trinity is involved in this that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant to you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. It's doable. It'll never be perfected. It will always be struggle. But it's doable because of the Father who desires it, the Son through whom, whose power is available to us because we are in Him, and the Spirit who takes it and applies it to our life. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge. Thank you for what you desire to do in our lives individually and corporately. It's it's not a, we hear this message and now bing, bang, boom. It just happens. Ah, Father, it's, 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 it's a lifetime goes from generation to generation to generation to generation. It's something that is never completely, fully achieved. But it is something where great progress can be demonstrated. Teach us, I pray, Father. Help us. May this prayer be our prayer. May we go back and read it often. May we pray that way for one another. May we pray that way for ourselves. And may we rely on the promise that you are able to do abundantly and beyond all that we ask and think. And in the context of that, it's talking about the ability to have our calling and conduct in balance. Thank you for who you are and for what you're doing and will continue to do for your glory, by your power, through the Spirit, because of your grace that we have obtained through what Christ has done for us on the cross. We commit ourselves to you today. Pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We don't have an altar call, but we do have an invitation. We invite you to respond Christ today. Don't know what your need is. Don't know what 
how the Lord is working in your life. But if you don't have a relationship, if you're not 100% certain that when a time comes for you to leave this life, that you will stand in God's presence, rejoicing in God's goodness. And if you're trusting in anything except Jesus and who He is and what He's done on the cross, you're trusting in something that won't get you there. You can try really hard, but that's not good enough. You can go to church, but that's not good enough. You can be baptized, but that's not good enough. You can be part of a Baptist church or a Bible church or a Methodist church. or Luke. It's not good enough. Because the only person who can pay and satisfy the wrath of God for your sin and my sin is Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith and trust in who He is and what He's done on the cross for you, you have eternal life. You have eternal life. And if you, haven't, if you don't have a relationship with God through Christ, ask Him to save you now or, or come and talk with us after the services and we'd be happy to show you or have someone else show you how you can have that relationship with Him. For those of us who are believers, it's a lofty goal. It's a lifetime goal. It's a goal that never is achieved. It's something we're always striving for. It always produces a level of discontentment because we're never going to quite get there in this life. But it causes us to long for our Savior. causes us to long for our glorification. But it also causes us to recognize the fact that God wants me to grow in this area. And while I'll never achieve it, I can get closer to it today than I was yesterday. I can become a little bit more like the Savior today. I can move forward. And even when I go backwards, I can still move forward. We're going to give you an opportunity to open up your heart to the Lord. And then after that, we'll continue our worship through our giving. Let's bow.